Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'm really pleased to see that you're here today to learn this topic in chapter 22 of the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. Because in our society, we as human beings tend to conform to whatever is going around in the social situation around us. This is one of the reasons why we survive is because we conform to kind of the norms that are around us. Well, over time, we've really gotten far away from Gautama Buddha's teachings and misunderstanding the whole topic of mental health. But more and more in the world, human beings are conforming to this discipline of mental health practices that exist in the world. These modern mental health practices where we use pharmaceutical substances in order to attempt to change brain chemistry, thinking that that is going to eliminate things like sadness or anxiety or stress or phobias or suicidal thoughts or things like anorexia or bulimia OCD, there's all these different names of things that are out there in the mental health field that we're using medications, chemicals, substances, introducing them into the body, attempting to change brain chemistry in order to change feelings. There are certain feelings in the mind that human beings are uncomfortable with. And we think that the solution is that the brain is defective and we need to apply chemicals to change the brain chemistry in order to change these feelings that are uncomfortable in the mind. Well, this is really, really far from true reality. So part of this delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality that we have in the world is what is the cause of these feelings in the mind that are uncomfortable to human beings and what is the solution and because we're missing this because of this modern day delusion that we have there's millions and millions and millions of people around the world that are relegated to medications pharmaceuticals and chemicals being introduced into the body with devastating effects in terms of side effects and other things in the body that are essentially causing harm and the important thing that we need to understand with these teachings from the Buddha is that we need to practice harmlessness. And part of practice and part of understanding these teachings to reach to enlightenment is to gain wisdom, understanding. That is what's going to eliminate this delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality. 
So in today's class, I'm going to be sharing with you what you can actually understand, which is true reality of why these uncomfortable feelings exist in the human mind and what the solution is. So that if you're currently looking to seek care to understand these feelings in the mind and how to eliminate them, you can find the solutions in Gautama Buddha's teachings. Or if you're currently been on medications and following this whole prescription of pharmaceutical substances, introducing these chemicals into the body, and it's just not working for you, then you can find out today what is the real problem and how to actually solve it. Or if you have loved ones around you, people that you deeply care about, and you see that their mental health is not well, and perhaps they are considering going into this mental health discipline, or they're currently practicing certain introducing substances into their body, you can share this information with them and help them understand with wisdom what is the real cause of the problem and how to actually solve it through the Buddhist teachings. What I share with you today is based on my own experiences because over 24 years of my life, I was a patient in the modern mental health field and I never found any solutions to what I was actually experiencing. I had massive amounts of uncomfortable feelings in the mind and I was told that my brain was defective and that I would be relegated to medications for the rest of my life and there was just nothing I could do about it, that this was just what was going to happen. And then subsequently, not long before I came to Thailand, I was told that I had muscular sclerosis and that I wouldn't be walking in the next 10 years and I needed to do these injections into my body of medicine to fix this muscular sclerosis based on the physical symptoms that I was experiencing. So there were certain physical symptoms that I've experienced in my life and there's been certain mental symptoms that I've experienced in my life that Western medicine told me that I was mentally ill, I had a brain defect, and I needed to introduce these chemicals, very costly chemicals, with just obnoxious side effects that were going to need to be done for the rest of my life. And what I discovered is that was not true. Because through learning and practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings to train the mind and stabilize the mind, I eliminated all the mental symptoms that I originally sought care for. And I eliminated all the physical symptoms that I sought care for. And because I was in America and living in Washington, D.C., and I had really good health insurance, I was seeing the best doctors in the area, seeing the very best and most well-regarded doctors related to muscular sclerosis and the conditions that I was experiencing. But yet I was still told certain things that to me became misleading. And it wasn't until I came here to Thailand that I was able to fully grasp and understand what was happening in the mind and in the body to eliminate all these things. Now, the suffering and anguish that people feel in terms of the feelings that are in the mind those are 100% real. The sadness, the anger, the anxiety, the stress, the wanting to look a different way and 
causing yourself to vomit, starving yourself for anorexia, the suicidal thoughts that are experienced, the highs and lows of some of these mental illnesses, the voices that people hear and are diagnosed with schizophrenia, all these different things that people are experiencing are truly 100% real. They're having these real experiences and there's quite a deep amount of suffering and anguish that people are experiencing. But the cause of what's causing this and what people are being told is the problem, i.e. brain chemistry, and the solution, introducing chemicals into the body, this is what's not working. And I'm gonna lay out for you very clearly in our talk today exactly what is the problem in the human mind, what is the solution, and then I'm gonna connect it to the mental health practices of today and help you see how we're being misguided just because people don't understand. I don't feel there's any necessary malicious intent on the people that are practicing these disciplines. I don't think mental health doctors or nurses or people who are developing medications for these conditions are necessarily doing anything scrupulous or backhanded or anything like that. I feel that all of these individuals that I ever interacted with in America deeply feel that they are doing what they feel is best. They truly believe that what they're doing is best. But that's the difference between belief and the truth. When we believe certain things, we can be handed down things through belief over multiple generations, and we all just conform to what's going on around us because that's what we do as social beings. We create universities, we create programs, we create a lot of things that teach people certain things, but then what we oftentimes realize as time goes on and we start to discover new things about the world, then we start realizing that the things that we did in the recent past were actually wrong and we were misled and misguided, not out of malicious intent, but just because we didn't understand what we didn't understand. And that's what delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality in Gautama Buddha's teachings is all about, is that we just don't understand what we don't understand. And today, my aim is to share with you how all of these uncomfortable feelings and experiences that we're having as human beings can be completely remedied and resolved through Gautama Buddha's teachings. Even things like hearing voices and people that are labeled as schizophrenic. This is all explainable through Gautama Buddha's teachings. In order for you to understand this, you need to first understand that Gautama Buddha's teachings are not a religion. What we've come to understand as a religion, meaning a belief system that people believe certain faith and then they believe these things, and then they hope when they die, some good result is gonna happen. That's not what Gautama Buddha's teachings are whatsoever. His teachings are teachings that can be learned and practiced with guidance from a teacher, and these teachings are meant to train the mind to perform more optimally. And when someone attains enlightenment, the mind is more concentrated, focused, there's clarity of thought, there's deep, profound memory, 
and you can eliminate discontent feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, resentment, jealousy, shyness. All of these discontent feelings are eliminated through understanding the teachings of the Buddha, practicing them to train the mind. We're actively training the mind. We're not practicing a belief system here. We're not going on faith. In fact, everything that I share with students is never believe me about anything. And that includes today. Don't believe me about anything that I share with you, but learn it, understand it, and look at how it applies in the world and applies in your life. And that way you can then know the truth. Because when you know the truth and you independently verify that truth for yourself, then you've got wisdom. And the mind is liberated through wisdom. That's how we remedy delusion, ignorance, or unknowing of true reality is by you taking teachings and then independently confirming them as true on your own. And then you develop wisdom which completely dissolves and eradicates and eliminates this delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality on countless topics related to what we currently think in the world. So in order to get our talk started, I'm going to share with you and kind of recap something that I've already shared in this program a few times, which is the three universal truths in the Four Noble Truths as an introduction to understanding this modern day delusion, this modern day delusion around mental health. Because in order for me to explain that to you, I need to make sure that everyone who's attending our talk today understands the problem and the solution in Gautama Buddha's teachings, the training of this mind, not a belief system, but how to actually train this mind. Because if you understand the three universal truths and the four noble truths, and you apply that in practice and see it to be true for yourself, then that wisdom that you have will fully help you understand why what I'm sharing with you is that this mental health practices is a modern day delusion. So as always, you're welcome to ask questions by typing your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and our moderator, Max, will be sure they get asked during the class. Those of you guys in Zoom, you can raise your hand to either ask any questions or follow up questions directly if you like. And I'll be pausing at different times in order to kind of help you get an opportunity to ask any questions based on the things that I'm discussing in today's class. So once again, thank you for joining today. Thank you for being very interested in learning and practicing these teachings, because as you do, you'll see the truth for yourself as the condition of the mind in your life gradually improve. So let's go ahead and start talking about the three universal truths. As I introduce this to you, it's important that, as I mentioned, you don't believe anything that I share. Because if you believe what I share, you're not going to be able to acquire wisdom. It's important that as you're learning today, that you listen to what I say, you reflect on that, and you look to see if it's true or not. This is the only way to progress in your practice. You should never believe anything any teacher ever teaches you about these teachings because belief isn't going to lead to liberation of the mind. It's not going to lead to eradication of 
ignorance or unknowing of true reality. So right here with this very first teaching of impermanence, I'm going to introduce it to you and then I'm going to invite you to reflect on this and understand it so that you can determine for yourself if it's true or not. This first teaching of the very first universal truth is all about impermanence. This truth is that everything is constantly changing. There's no permanent state, meaning that there's no material objects or possessions, relationships, thoughts, ideas, states of mind in the unenlightened state. Everything in the world's constantly changing. All conditioned thoughts will cease to exist. So these thoughts arise and then they cease to exist. Everything that arises will cease to exist. There's no steady, constant, or fixed state other than enlightenment. And if you have questions about why enlightenment is permanent, I can explain that to you. But let me first explain impermanence. So the Buddha is saying here that there's no constant, steady, fixed state, that all conditioned things will arise and then they will cease to exist. You don't believe the Buddha. You don't believe me. What you do is you put this into practice and you determine if it's truth or not. And then you'll have wisdom. So if you can find just one thing that's permanent, then you've disproved the Buddha. And you're smarter than the Buddha. And now you can completely ignore everything that I say. And you can decide to no longer study the Buddhist teachings. So impermanence. Everything is constantly changing. Whatever arises will cease to exist. The way you practice this is you now look in the world around you because these are the natural laws of existence. These are the three universal truths. The Buddha knew their truth. I know their truth, but you need to know it in order to gain wisdom. So you look in the world around you. Is your body permanent? Because if your body's permanent, then you've disproven the Buddha. Has the body been exactly the same your entire life? The answer is no, right? Your body's constantly changing from birth until now, and it's going to continue to change until death. And then at death, it's going to change because it's going to change from that point forward. The body's constantly changing. Is your hair the same length? Does it always stay the same length? No. You got to constantly cut it. Or you had hair at one time and now it's gone, right? The hair is not permanent. What about your teeth? Are your teeth permanent? Have you had the same teeth your entire life? No, they're constantly changing, right? You had a set of teeth when you were younger and then they all fell out and now you've got your adult teeth and then your adult teeth start to decay and you've got to put fillings into them and you've got to go to the doctor and you've got to take care of your teeth, right? Because your teeth aren't permanent. What about your job? Have you had the same exact job? your entire life with the same exact income because that would be permanence, right? No, you haven't. What about your relationships? Have you had the same exact people in your life from the beginning of your life all the way until now? No, people come and go because they're not permanent. Are the people that are in your life always around you and you're never alone? No, sometimes you're alone, sometimes you're with people. Are your parents permanent? No, they're going to die someday. They're not permanent. 
and this life is not permanent either. So we could keep going through all these different things, right? We build a sidewalk and the sidewalk looks brand new, but over time it degrades, it gets cracks, it falls apart. It needs to be rebuilt because it's impermanent. We build a fence and we paint the fence and then it looks beautiful and brand new, but over time the paint fades and it needs to be repainted because the fence is impermanent, right? The sun comes out and it's all sunny, but then the clouds come and cover the sun. The weather's impermanent, right? This is a universal truth that there's no steady, constant, fixed state other than enlightenment. And you need to soak this into the mind so well that you know everything's impermanent except for enlightenment and the natural laws of existence, okay? If you're not convinced of that through your own reflection today, then you need to spend some time reflecting on this at other times until you soak it in and you look around you and see that everything's impermanent. The second universal truth is discontentedness. Gautama Buddha used the word dukkha, and a lot of people will translate this to mean suffering, but I'm going to use the word discontentedness, and then I'll explain to you why I don't use the word suffering. When the Buddha used the word dukkha, he explained it as three feelings, painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Painful feelings are things like sadness, depression, anger, hatred, ill will, guilt, shame, fear, anxiety, stress, frustration, annoyance. All of these different feelings are very painful to experience. And you've experienced them, so you know they're painful, right? The second feeling that he described as discontentedness is pleasant feelings. These are feelings like happiness, excitement, and elation. And then he described neither painful nor pleasant. I categorize boredom, loneliness, melancholy, shyness, kind of a displeased or uncomfortable, unsatisfied feeling, kind of like you're sitting somewhere and you've got your kind of personal space and somebody comes and sits like really, really close to you. It's not painful. It's not pleasant. It's neither painful nor pleasant. Or when you're shy. It's not really painful. It's not really pleasant. It's kind of neither painful nor pleasant, right? So these are the three feelings. And these are some examples that I've added in. Now, if you categorize these in different ways, that's fine. Some people tell me that boredom and loneliness is very painful for them. Okay, that's fine. You can put those there. This isn't kind of like a locked in list, but this is just how I looked at boredom and loneliness. It was kind of neither painful nor pleasant. It's like, ah, the mind doesn't really know what it wants right? And it's kind of bored. It's kind of lonely. Uh, where the pleasant feelings, the mind gets what it wants and it's so happy. It's so excited. It's so elated. And then painful feelings, the mind doesn't get what it wants and now it's painful, right? It's sad. It's depressed. It's angered, right? So these are the three feelings. Now, a large majority of the people in the Buddhist world will refer to this as suffering, and when I say the word suffering, I think about painful feelings. Like when I was sad and when I experienced depression, deep depression, yeah, I was suffering. Or when I experienced anger in the past, yeah, I was suffering. Or when I had fear or guilt or shame, you know, I felt like I was suffering for sure. 
But when I was happy and excited and elated, I wouldn't say I was suffering. Or when I was experiencing shyness, neither painful nor pleasant, shyness, I wouldn't say I was suffering, but the mind was surely discontent, right? So this word suffering only really explains one third of what the Buddha was talking about. And if we only understand 33% of the Buddha's teachings, good luck in getting to enlightenment, right? Because we only understand 33% of what he was saying. We're missing a whole 66% of what he was saying. There's just no way that's going to turn out to be enlightenment. So in order to fully understand everything that the Buddha was saying in terms of discontentedness, we need to understand that it's painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant using this word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness, not this word suffering. Because the goal of Buddhist practice is to eliminate the discontent mind, eliminate discontentedness. And when you look at this, you might say, well, hey, why am I eliminating happiness and excitement and elation? I like those pleasant feelings. Well, yeah, you like them while they're there, but then those feelings are impermanent. And when that happiness is gone and the mind moves to sadness or anger or frustration, you don't like that, do you? So this happiness, excitement, and elation that the mind experiences, it's discontent because it's impermanent. And the mind is latching on to some external thing And when it gets this thing, this object of its affection, it becomes happy, excited, and elated. And when it doesn't have that, that's when the mind moves to painful feelings. So the goal is to eliminate the mind's tendency to lurch and long and have this strong eagerness for these external things, which creates this happiness, excitement, and elation. By eliminating the mind's tendency to hold on to these external things, then The mind is inwardly joyful. The mind can be joyful and it can experience this permanent joy because it's no longer latching on to these external things, right? But we're going to get to that when we talk about the Four Noble Truths. But for right now, understand the second universal truth is discontentedness. And there's these three feelings that create this second universal truth of painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Now, you don't just agree with the Buddha. You don't believe him. You don't believe me. What you do instead is you practice. And the way you practice is you put this under a microscope and you say, okay, Mr. Gautama Buddha, who lived 2,500 years ago, a lot of people feel that you had a lot of wisdom. You say there's painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. He's describing the mind to you. He's describing what it is that you experience in the unenlightened mind. So, name a feeling that you have that doesn't match to one of these three. Because if you can come up with a feeling that doesn't fit into one of these three categories then once again, you've disproven the Buddha, you're smarter than the Buddha. So think of a feeling that you've had. I don't have jealousy up here, right? What, what is jealousy? Is jealousy painful, pleasant, or neither painful nor pleasant? You decide. 
Some people would say it's painful. Some people would say it's neither painful nor pleasant. Or what about resentment? I don't have that feeling up here. What is resentment? Is resentment painful? Is it pleasant? Is it neither painful nor pleasant? So go through the various feelings that you've had and experienced and decide for yourself so that you can see the truth and gain wisdom. Does these three feelings describe what you experience in the mind? Painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Okay? So you should do that, and then you know with 100% certainty, yes, discontentedness is a universal truth, and I see the wisdom in the Buddhist teachings of him having explained that. This third universal truth is about non-self. The Buddha taught that there is no permanent self. However, the unenlightened mind has a self in the mind. So let's talk about what the self is, and then we'll talk more about non-self. What a self is, is a self is identification with a self or a self-image. Essentially, the mind, the unenlightened mind, has in it this concept of a permanent self. Oftentimes, if you ask somebody, or if I ask you, point to yourself. Where are you? Judith, where are you? Marcia, where are you? Bill, where are you? Javier, where are you? Oftentimes, people will point to the physical body. And they say, there I am right there. No, that's just a shirt. Okay, well, take off the shirt. Where are you, David? I point. No, that's skin. You're pointing to skin. That's not David. That's just skin. So we get rid of the skin. Where's David? Point to David. Oh, that's the bones. That's the rib cage. Okay, let's get rid of the rib cage. Where's David? Oh, now we've got organs. We've got liquid. We've got fluid. Where is this permanent David? The permanent David doesn't exist. Because there's many Davids in the world. There's millions of Davids in the world, right? So this permanent self that's in the mind of the unenlightened mind thinks that there is a permanent self. You can look at how you looked at yourself when you were a child, when you were a teenager, early adulthood, and how you viewed yourself has been constantly changing. The way you looked at yourself as a child adolescent or early adulthood is very different than the way you look at yourself now because there is no permanent self because the self keeps changing your image and your identity keeps changing but the unenlightened mind thinks that there is a permanent self here and that unenlightened mind is going to protect it so essentially what's happening in the unenlightened mind is we are falsely identifying the physical body and or the mind as being the self. The unenlightened mind is falsely identifying the physical body or the mind as being a self, as a permanent self that needs to be protected at all costs. And because of this, you cause yourself discontentedness. Part of what is causing the discontentedness is that you're protecting this self and the mind becomes very fearful, 
right? And it's this protection of the self that is part of what causes the mind to be discontent. So in order to attain enlightenment, this self needs to be eradicated, which is a whole nother talk, a whole nother aspect of the teachings. This part of the universal truths is that you need to understand that there is no self. And this usually takes time for the mind to gradually realize this. You have to understand it intellectually, but then you need to get this practical understanding of it by putting it into practice. And then you get to what we call realizing non-self or eliminating the fetter of a personal existence view. Once you're able to realize non-self, eliminating this personal existence view, eliminating this self from the mind, then the mind will be more liberated. Because as long as you hold this permanent self in the mind, then the mind's going to want to protect it. And it, it causes all kinds of complications because of this false identification of the body and the mind as being a self. So if you followed any part of what I just shared, even the part about when you were a child or adolescent or early adulthood, you had looked at yourself in a certain way, and now you know that you look at yourself differently, then you should know that there is no self because the image of what you see as yourself has been constantly changing your whole life. So that means it can't be a permanent self. Or another way is to point. Where are you? You can't point to you. You can point to a physical body. You can point to a mind, but you can't point to James or Max or Judith or Marcia or Bill because these don't exist. These are just labels that we were given at birth in order to make it easy for people to understand who they were talking about. Because you can't say this bag of skin with lots of bones and fluid just walked in and is doing his homework, Grandma. You know, my mom couldn't say that, right? My mom said, David just came in and he's about to do his homework, right? So this name was given to me at birth as a label so that people knew that this physical body and this mind, this combination of these two things together, we're going to call that David for this life. We're going to call that thing David over there, okay? This little blob that just came out of its mom's stomach, we're going to call it David, right? And then the problem becomes that we start assigning identity and image, this self-identity, this self-image to this name David. And then we want to protect it. And then when another David walks in, I don't like it because I'm David, right? How, how's this guy David? I'm David. Right. I remember this when I was a child, when there was other Davids in the room. I, I didn't like them. I didn't like other people named David. Right. Because I'm David. How can they be David? Right. This is what the mind does because it thinks that there's a permanent self. So you've got to get to the point where you don't have this self in the mind. And that starts with understanding this intellectual understanding that there is no self. You can't point to a self. And that's something that the mind needs to gradually understand as you progress on this path. And this is the third universal truth. So let me pause here and see if there's any questions on any of these. I have a question, David. Would an enlightened mind experience any pleasant feelings or painful feelings? An enlightened mind is not going to experience any painful feelings or pleasant feelings. And the way that we're defining this is these are feelings that are based on a condition, an external source. So your girlfriend or boyfriend broke up with you and now you're sad. Or 
you lost your mobile phone and now you're sad and angry and upset. Your child comes home with grades that are displeasing to you and now you're disappointed. An enlightened mind's not going to experience that. Or you get a new girlfriend and now you're happy. Or you get a new job and now you're so happy because you got a new job. Okay? An enlightened mind's not going to experience those. But when your kid comes home with grades that are not to your liking, an enlightened mind is going to look at this as an impermanent situation that all we need to do is apply wisdom in order to solve this problem, solve this challenge, and make sure the child gets the support it needs in order to improve its grades. So an enlightened mind, rather than feeling sad or disappointed in the child, it's going to recognize this as impermanent and all we need to do is apply wisdom, support the child and figure out how to encourage them, motivate them and provide them the resources they need in order to get better grades. And those can be improved. And conversely, if you get a new job or you get a new boyfriend or girlfriend or an enlightened mind experiences something that you get that is something you're interested in, you're not going to have this happiness and excitement and elation. You're going to be like, okay, excellent. Things are moving in the right direction. This is what I needed in order to get to the next step of what I'm doing in my life. But you're not going to have this temporary happiness, excitement, and elation. You'll just feel joy. You'll just feel an internal joy, but you'll feel that joy all the time, not based on this external thing. So when my son comes home with good grades, I am pleased. It feels good to see that he's got good grades. But I'm already joyful before he actually brings the grades home. I'm already experiencing joy. And then when he brings the grades home and they're good, I still feel joy. If he brings home report and they're bad grades, like his tie is not as good as his other subjects. His tie is kind of low. I don't feel disappointed. I don't feel the joy is gone. I don't feel anger. I just feel like, okay, we need to get him more support and we need to improve this grade. So an enlightened mind is going to experience no painful feelings whatsoever, no pleasant feelings, no feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, but the mind's going to be permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But none of those feelings are going to be based on external conditions. An enlightened mind is going to laugh and joke and have fun but the mind's not going to long for that. It's not going to be constantly trying to continue that. An enlightened mind's going to be in the middle where you can laugh and joke and have fun, but then boom, you come right back to the middle because you know that feeling of laughing at the joke is impermanent. And you see the danger in allowing the mind to dwell in that temporary happiness and excitement. So you're able to pull the mind back to the middle. Because if you allow the mind to latch on to this external condition and that's the source of your happiness, then when that condition's gone, the mind's going to then move to sadness and anger or something else. So essentially what the mind becomes is it no longer is latching on to these external conditions, looking for these external conditions to create internal feelings. So the enlightened mind is no longer going to be looking for happiness, excitement, and elation externally and looking for certain conditions to be met. And now I'm happy 
because of these external conditions are met. An enlightened mind is just going to be joyful all the time, regardless of what's going on around you. And because of that, and the mind has been trained so well, then the mind also doesn't get sad or angered based on external conditions either. Because it doesn't latch on to these external things, it's inwardly satisfied, it's inwardly content, and it's inwardly joyful. Okay, thank you, David. We have a question from Judith. So do we need some kind of temporary sense of self in order to go through this life circumstances, even if we can see that there is no real self? You don't need a self. It's not required, but there is the concept of a self in the mind. The unenlightened mind thinks there's a self and it holds on to this self until you learn that there isn't a self and you take direct steps to actively train the mind to eliminate this self. So the self's going to be there in the mind until you make the choice to learn about non-self and apply specific practices to eliminate the self from the mind. And as long as there's a self there, you're going to experience discontentedness. It's just part of how the human mind works, that as long as it falsely identifies this physical body and mind as the self, as long as you believe that there's Judith, and you don't know the truth and have the wisdom of non-self and realizing non-self, you're going to experience discontentedness. And even when you eradicate the self, that's just the first fetter. Even when you eradicate the self, there's still going to be some discontentedness because you haven't eliminated all 10 fetters yet. It's only when you eliminate all 10 that you actually get to the point where there's no discontentedness whatsoever. So you, the human beings don't need this self. But the problem is, is that human beings are holding on to this self and that's causing massive problems in the mind and in the world. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so let's move on to this first definition that it's important that you understand before we talk about the Four Noble Truths. This is craving, desire, attachment. A mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. This is also expectations, wants, holding or grasping. This is how the mind pulls in the direction of something. I really want that new car. And if I just get that new car, everything will be wonderful. That's all I need is that new car. And then my life is perfect. All I need is that new job. And if I just get that new job, that's all I need. And everything will be perfect. If I just get those silly neighbors upstairs to be quiet and they would just be quiet, everything would be perfect in my life right? If I can just get that raise, I really want that raise. I need that extra money. And if I just get that raise, everything will be perfect. And I wouldn't want anything else. Well, the problem is, is that our craving desires attachments are unlimited because they're impermanent. They just keep changing over and over and over and over again until you actively train the mind to understand what craving desire attachment is and you train the mind to eliminate it. So as long as the mind is longing, having this longing with a strong eagerness, if it has this craving, desire, attachment, these expectations, these wants, this holding and grasping, looking for these external conditions, as long as it has those, it's going to be discontent. 
And that's what we're going to explore in the Four Noble Truths. So understanding this definition of craving, desire, attachment is a building block, as is the universal truths. The three universal truths are a building block for learning and understanding the Four Noble Truths. So is there anyone that has any question on what a craving, desire, attachment is or how we also refer to these as expectations, wants, holding, or grasping. The way the mind pulls in the direction of some object of our affection, some relationship, some material possession, something that the mind wants. Does anyone have any questions on this? Yes, we have a question from Biplob. He asks, is planning for a better workplace or planning for a better shelter, is that craving? So you can't say that, yes, that is craving or no, that is not craving, okay? Because it's all about how the mind relates to it. So there's the ability for the mind to pursue things as a goal, an objective, or an interest. I'd like to improve my shelter. I'd like to improve my job and have a better income. And now I'm going to make good, wholesome decisions in the direction of obtaining that goal, objective, or interest. That would not be a craving. But if the mind thinks that this new shelter or this new job or this new income is just exactly what the mind needs, it's lurching after it. It's longing for it. The mind is almost obsessed with it in some cases. It's longing for it. And it just feels if I just get that new shelter, that's all I need and everything in the world will be perfect. That's a craving, desire, attachment. So you can't say that having a mobile phone is an attachment or it's a craving or desire attachment. It's all about how the mind relates to this. So it's not the object itself that's the craving, desire, attachment. It's how the mind relates to it. Is the mind pulling towards it? Does it want it so badly? So you can pursue this, Biplob, as a goal, objective, or an interest, and just be like, okay, I'm going to work in the direction of getting a new shelter, improving the conditions of my life, getting some more income, and I'm going to just gradually work in that direction. And as I progress in life, those good things will happen for me as I make better and better decisions. That's the way to pursue everything in life. But the problem is, is that the unenlightened mind doesn't want to do that. The unenlightened mind wants it right now. And the unenlightened mind thinks that if I just get this one thing or these two or three or four things and everything in my life would be perfect and everything would be wonderful, that's craving desire attachment. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay. So the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths establishes the first foundational step on eventually what we refer to as the Eightfold Path. We call this right view. With understanding the Four Noble Truths, you establish right view, and from that point forward, you can build all the rest of the Buddhist teachings on top of it. But without understanding the Four Noble Truths and right view, you wouldn't be able to progress and understand and practice anything else that the Buddha has to teach you. So this is why the Buddha made it his very first discourse. When he taught, after he attained enlightenment, and then he taught, this was his very first discourse discussing the Four Noble Truths with his first five students so that they would understand what is right view. And then he could build everything else on top of that, guiding lots and lots of people to enlightenment. 
the description that I give of the Four Noble Truths is a description that will help you to understand what's going on in the mind. Exactly what the Buddha taught is in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana in Chapter 4. I share that in a box highlighting his words. This is a way for you to understand it in more direct and simple terms. The first noble truth is everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. So if you experience painful feelings, pleasant feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, you know that you're unenlightened. So if you experience anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, if your mind becomes happy and excited and elated, then that's pleasant feelings. That's discontentedness. If you experience neither painful nor pleasant, shyness, boredom, loneliness, displeasure, discomfortableness, then you know that you're unenlightened. Big deal. There's lots of unenlightened people in the world. You're learning the Buddhist teachings and your goal is to attain enlightenment. But one of the big questions that people always ask is how do I know if I'm enlightened or not? How do I know if I'm unenlightened? Well, the way you know you're unenlightened is that you experience discontent feelings and that's how you know that you're unenlightened. But big deal, you're on the path to enlightenment. Let's improve that by learning what the problem is. Because the second noble truth shares what is the cause of the problem, right? The first noble truth is the problem. The problem is, is that everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. The second noble truth explains the cause of the problem. The cause is discontentedness is caused by our own attachments because the mind craves for everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So let's go through that a few times and give you some examples. Discontentedness is caused. So these painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, this anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, happiness, excitement, elation, boredom, loneliness, shyness, all of these discontent feelings are caused by the mind having this longing and a strong eagerness, this craving for everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So the mind craves permanence. It wants permanence. Another way to say that is the mind does not like change. The mind does not like impermanence. The unenlightened mind just does not like when things are constantly changing. But the problem is, is that everything's always constantly changing because everything is impermanent. An example of this is when you've had a boyfriend or girlfriend in the past and you guys got along for a certain period of time and everything was wonderful, at some point you guys decided to split and you became either angered or frustrated or irritated or annoyed. You might have become bored or lonely. The reason why is because your mind was craving for this relationship to be permanent. It wanted this relationship to be permanent. And then when it experienced this impermanence, this change, the mind became discontent. When you go to a hotel or you go to a friend's house, oftentimes you might have trouble sleeping. Why? Because of the change. The mind doesn't like change, right? When somebody dies in your life, the mind might become sad or even angered 
or bored or lonely because of this relationship that you had with this person. You should know they're going to die because they were born. They have to die. But the mind still didn't like that impermanence. It didn't like the fact that things changed, that you had this relationship with this person and now they're gone because the mind craved permanence. So therefore, the mind caused itself to be discontent because it has this longing with a strong eagerness. It has this craving, desire, attachment for things to be permanent when everything is impermanent. This is the cause of the discontentedness. So when the mind gets what it wants, it becomes happy, it becomes excited because it craves permanence. And when it gets it, it becomes happy, excited, elated. It gets those pleasant feelings. And then when it doesn't get what it wants, it has painful feelings, sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, right? And then when it doesn't even know what it wants, it has neither painful nor pleasant. It's bored, it's lonely, right? This is the cause of the problem. Craving desire attachment is the cause of the discontentedness. The third noble truth explains the solution. The elimination of discontentedness is possible by eliminating this craving desire attachments. By training the mind to eliminate this mental longing with a strong eagerness, these expectations, these wants, this grasping, this holding, this longing for things, lurching out in the outside world, by eliminating the mind's tendency to do that, then you eliminate discontentedness. Because if the mind can just accept impermanence, then it won't experience discontentedness. Here's an example of that. If I buy a brand new red sports car and I drive down the road and I park it at a store and I go inside and I come out and there's a scratch. Oh my goodness, there's a scratch on the car. I get discontent, right? Because the mind sees that scratch and it doesn't like the impermanence. And the mind becomes angered or frustrated or irritated, right? The mind has caused itself to be discontent because it was craving permanence. But if someone like Max eliminates his discontentedness and eliminates that craving, if he understands impermanence, when he's signing the papers to the car, he knows that red shiny sports car is not going to look like that forever. And when he parks the car in front of the store and he goes inside and he comes out and he sees the scratch, he thinks, huh, thank goodness I got insurance because I can take that down to the shop and get it fixed. He's not discontent. He just, okay, there's some impermanence. Let me go get it fixed, right? What does the anger do? How does that benefit us, right? So to eliminate the discontentedness, we eliminate that longing with a strong eagerness for everything to be permanent. And that's why one person can get very angry in a situation and another person can be very calm. It's all about how the mind is trained. So this third noble truth is all about training the mind to eliminate discontentedness. And we do that through eliminating this craving, desire, attachment with breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and practicing generosity. That's the generalized training that we use in order to train the mind in this direction of eliminating craving, desire, attachment. But there's also other things that I talk about in chapter 12 that help you to identify attachments and how to eliminate them. 
because there's things you need to do outside of meditation as well to eliminate this from the mind. The fourth noble truth describes the complete solution. So if the first noble truth is describing the problem, the second is describing the cause of the problem, the third is describing the solution to the problem, the fourth noble truth is explaining the complete solution to the discontent mind, which is the path to eliminating discontentedness is the eightfold path. And when you learn these eight steps and you practice them as part of your daily life, then you will gradually eliminate these discontent feelings, which includes eliminating craving, desire, attachment, but it also includes a whole lot of other things too. You wouldn't be able to only eliminate craving, desire, attachment and eliminate all discontentedness. There's a whole lot of other things you need to learn on this path to enlightenment. So this fourth noble truth gives us the complete solution to the problem. And what I like to highlight is the vast majority of us have been taught that the goal in life is to be happy. And a lot of us have been pursuing happiness our whole life, but yet we never get it. We might get it temporarily, but it never is permanent. And that's because happiness is impermanent. It's an impermanent feeling. And that's why it's displeasing to the mind. Ultimately, it's displeasing because it's not permanent. So when the mind is happy and we allow it to become happy based on external conditions, then at some point it's going to move to sadness, anger, or worse. And it's only in training the mind to no longer pursue happiness, but instead develop a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Develop this contented mind that is just satisfied with what is. And when you develop this mind that's internally satisfied with what is, then you can reside permanently peaceful, permanently calm, permanently serene, permanently content, and permanently joyful because it's not based on any external conditions. It doesn't matter what's happening around you. The mind is always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But as long as your mind thinks that you're pursuing happiness and that's the goal, then you're always going to be displeased because that happiness is impermanent. So you've got to shift your thinking and say, the goal is to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, not based on any of this external stuff. So if I have 50 people in class, I have joy. If I have two people in class, joy. doesn't matter, right? If my son comes home with grades that are good, great, fine, joy. He has bad grades, okay, there's still joy there. We just got to figure out how to solve the problem. We just got to figure out how to solve this challenge of he's got bad grades and he needs to improve those. But the anger and frustration, that's not going to help anything, right? And that's what the Buddhist teachings are guiding us towards, not as a belief system, not as a religion, but as a training of the mind to improve our mental health. Okay, so let's pause here and see what questions that we have. So given, David, that happiness is impermanent and today is the 3rd of January, might we still wish people a happy new year? Or is there some better alternative we might use? That's up to you. If you notice, I haven't wished anyone a happy new year at all. What I've said is I wish you a peaceful holiday season, right? If you notice what I've sent out. So that's what I say. I don't say happy new year. What you choose to say is totally up to you. 
but I don't use the word happy or wishing people happiness. And in my loving kindness meditation, I also don't say may all beings be happy because that's what most people will say in their loving kindness meditation as an affirmation. But the affirmations that I use is may all beings be peaceful, safe, well, and free of discontentedness and the suffering it causes. The goal is not for everyone to be happy because that's not possible. Got it. Thank you, David. So we do have one more question, but I think it might be better placed when we get up onto the mental health component of our talk today. Okay, so let's move on to the next piece then. As we transition now from talking about the problem, the cause of the problem, the solution to the problem, and the complete solution, now let's move into talking about mental health. What it's important to understand in terms of mental health is this brain this tissue, this physical substance that's inside of your skull, that's not the mind, okay? There's the organ of the brain, but it's not the mind. And the mind is also not the brain. These are two separate things, okay? The mind is not physical in nature. It's intangible. It's not tangible. It can't be physically touched. The mind is separate from the brain. The brain is this physical organ, okay? There's two different things here. We've got the physical brain and we've got the intangible non-physical mind. There's some connection. There's definitely some connection here, but it's not the same thing, okay? So you need to see that very clearly, that the mind is this separate thing. It's just like if somebody chopped off my hand right? If this body was David, that means if someone chopped off my hand, that means David is gone because we've chopped off the body, right? This body is not David. There's this physical body, which the brain is part of. And then there's this intangible, non-physical mind. Okay. That's a very important thing to understand as it relates to mental health. People who are experiencing these symptoms of sadness, stress, anxiety, or other painful feelings, pleasant feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, are seeking chemicals in order to change brain chemistry. You can't improve the condition of the mind permanently through changing brain chemistry because the mind is not the brain. If we introduce chemicals into the body to change brain chemistry, while that has an effect on the mind, it doesn't permanently solve the problems in the mind. Because the anger, the frustration, the irritation, the guilt, the shame, the happiness, excitement, elation, the boredom, loneliness, it's not based on brain chemistry. The reason why we're experiencing these feelings is because of craving, desire, attachment. The mind longing, wanting things to be permanent. The reason why we get angry or bored when we separate from our significant others or our boyfriend or girlfriend is not because our brain chemistry instantly went out of whack, right? That's not why we experience sadness. We don't experience sadness when our child comes home with a report card that has bad grades because our brain chemistry instantly when a foul. That's not why we're experiencing sadness. That's not why we're experiencing stress or anxiety. It's not because our brain chemistry instantly changed in that moment. 
The thing is, is that our mind, this intangible, non-physical thing, has this longing for something. You really want your child to have really good grades. And when they come home and they didn't do what you want, then you're angry, then you're disappointed. Or the mind craves to be with this partner long-term and forever. And then when they die or the relationship separates, the brain chemistry didn't change at that moment. It's because the mind is longing for this relationship to be permanent. And when it's not, that's what causes the discontentedness. So these symptoms that we experience today, that is sadness, stress, anxiety, and others that we label as depression or bipolar or these other things, it's not because the brain chemistry instantly changed. It's because the mind is untrained. The mind hasn't been trained to let go, eliminating the craving desire attachment. The mind has this longing with a strong eagerness. And once we train the mind to eliminate this longing with strong eagerness, then we will eliminate these painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. It doesn't matter how many chemicals you introduce into the body, it's not going to eliminate this longing with a strong eagerness, the real cause of the problem. It's not going to solve the fact that the mind wants your son or daughter to have a good report card and you really want them to have good grades. And when they come home with grades that aren't to your liking, that medicine isn't going to change that. You've got to change it through training the mind. It's the only solution, right? So we'll talk about this some more in the next slide as we get going here today. Let me give you some examples of some common things that happen in our life that we're attributing to mental illness. Let's say that somebody has some childhood traumas in their life. And let's just say they were sexually abused or mentally abused or physically abused as a child. And these things happen to them at the hands of their mother, their father, their uncle, their grandparents or whomever, a teacher, a priest, a religious leader, who knows? Some childhood trauma happens where it shakes up this child. Mental abuse, physical abuse, or sexual abuse. And because of this abuse, the mind experiences very painful feelings, sadness, anger, frustration, guilt, shame, fear, right? All of these things. And this unenlightened mind, because it craves permanence, it holds on. It holds on to those past experiences and it remembers what happened when there was that verbal abuse, physical abuse, or sexual abuse. The mind holds on to these unpleasant experiences. And every time the mind thinks about these, this sadness and guilt and shame comes in. Or even if you're not thinking about those feelings, there's just this underlying sadness and anger, frustration, guilt, and shame that's there. Because the mind is holding on to these unpleasant experiences that happened in the past and the mind's holding on and holding on and holding on and the longer it holds on the more sadness and despair and misery that the mind experiences ultimately potentially getting to the point where this person who experienced this childhood trauma 
decides that they're going to try to commit suicide and kill themselves because their mind is so discontent from these painful feelings. And now we label that person as being mentally ill because they would like to kill themselves. Right? This person is certainly experiencing symptoms. They're certainly experiencing sadness and despair and misery. That's all real. They truly are interested in ending those feelings. If you talk to most people who are interested in killing themselves, they really don't want to die. They just want to end those feelings. They want to get rid of those sad feelings, that despair. That's what they want to end. They don't want to end their life, but they'll see the only way out is to end their life because they don't know the solution of how to end those feelings. doesn't matter how much medication that they take, how many chemicals they introduce into the body, those experiences that they had as a child aren't eliminated. The mind's holding on to them. And as long as there's this longing and strong eagerness, the mind's holding on, holding on, and holding on, as long as it's doing that, it's going to experience these painful feelings, right? So this chemical, this compound, this medicine that's being introduced into the body isn't solving the suicidal thoughts because it's not solving the core problem, which is the mind is holding on. The mind hasn't been trained to let go of these past experiences. So therefore, it's experiencing sadness, anger, frustration, guilt, and shame. And it becomes so overwhelming that some people choose to take their life or attempt to take their life. There's another one called bipolar disorder, right? Bipolar disorder is where people say that the brain chemistry is off and therefore these people will experience deep sadness and despair and then it will cycle and become excited and the mind will become elated. It's called mania. Essentially what the mind is experiencing is painful feelings and pleasant feelings and it cycles through these feelings from painful to pleasant. And oftentimes people who are experiencing this will have deep cravings and addictions, either substance abuse, sexual addictions, gambling addictions. They will go out and spend money and shop and try to buy up a bunch of things. Because the mind is so discontent, the person is searching and longing for pleasant feelings when there's mania. They're longing for those pleasant feelings, and the way that they get them is through sex, through drugs and alcohol, through gambling, through shopping, things like this, right? Or those things aren't going on and then the mind becomes very sad, very depressed. Because oftentimes these addictions, these cravings, if there's a sexual addiction, if there's substance abuse, if there's gambling, if they're shopping, eventually there's no more money. Eventually there's not enough people to have sex with. Eventually the gambling is done and over. Eventually the drugs and alcohol are gone and the mind cycles down to sad feelings, despair, depression. And this is the mind that is untrained, that is cycling up and down and up and down. It doesn't matter how much chemicals you introduce into the body, if this person has a longing with a strong eagerness for sex or drugs or gambling or shopping, the mind's going to keep chasing those pleasant feelings, whatever they are. And as long as the mind's lurching for those pleasant feelings, when those pleasant feelings aren't there, when those conditions aren't there, it's going to cycle to sadness. 
and now it's going to be angered or frustrated or sad. It doesn't matter which chemical you introduce into the body. Additionally, bipolar people are oftentimes classified and labeled as being rude or impolite or angry or frustrated. And, you know, when they speak, they might speak aggressively or hostile for some people, not all. But this is just an untrained mind that doesn't understand what we call right speech, right? And hasn't been practicing right speech, right? I share these things, these examples, because these are examples from my life. I had childhood trauma, and I also had been labeled as bipolar disorder. And I also, at some points in my life, had suicidal thoughts. And at some times in my life, I had this, what they call mania or sadness and despair. And I was on lots of different medications to solve all of these problems over 24 years. And nothing ever solved it. Nothing. Until... I got off the medications and practiced the Buddhist teachings. And that's what solved it, right? Now, I don't experience any of that whatsoever. Essentially, what's happening here by people thinking that mental illness is caused by brain chemistry, by people thinking that these painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings are neither painful nor pleasant are caused by chemical imbalances in the brain, then they're misled on what the source of the problem is, what the real source is, and also what the solution is. So as long as millions and millions of people think that their brain is defective, it's not producing the right chemicals, and therefore they need to introduce this pharmaceutical substance into the body to solve this brain chemistry, as long as people are doing that, they're never going to get to a permanent solution because they're not addressing the real problem, which is this craving, desire, attachment, and that the mind is untrained and not practicing this Eightfold Path. Essentially, there's wrong view. They don't have right view, so therefore, they think the problem is this brain chemistry, and they're going to keep trying to solve that. And as long as they believe that and they don't see the truth, then they're going to experience continuous discontentedness and continuous problems. And we'll talk about how you can see that to be true in the next slide. But let me talk about this next point. The true source of the problem is still unknown to a person who's seeking pharmaceutical solutions. Therefore, these people believe that their intentions, their speech, and their actions are a result of brain chemistry rather than this untrained mind with craving, desire, and attachment. Once the mind understands that the source of the problem, the real cause is craving, desire, attachment, and it's just that the mind is untrained and that you can eliminate this discontentedness through training the mind, now you're practicing right view because you're accepting responsibility for the intentions. What intentions are is the thoughts in the mind. You're accepting responsibility for your speech. You're accepting responsibility for your actions. And when you accept responsibility for your intentions, your speech, and your actions, now you can actively train the mind to improve these things. But as long as you believe that it's the brain chemistry's off and the brain's defective and I'm mentally ill, and that's why my thinking, my speech, and my actions are, are not conducive to a peaceful life. As long as you believe that, 
then you're never going to accept responsibility for your intention, your speech, and your actions. So therefore, you're never going to be able to improve it because it's the brain's fault. It's the brain's fault that I'm this way. I was born this way. There's nothing I can do about it. All I can do is take medicine. But that doesn't really seem to help. Maybe helps a little bit, but it doesn't totally solve the problem because the person hasn't accepted responsibility for their intention, speech, and actions. They're not practicing right view. And that's what I was doing for a very long period of time. I didn't have right view. I never truly believed that I was bipolar, but to a certain level, I did believe it because I took medicine for 24 years, right? So to a certain degree, I did believe it, but I never truly believed it. So when I started getting indications that that wasn't the problem and there's this other solution, I moved towards that other solution in a very consistent and dedicated way to solve this discontent mind. And that's what ultimately did it is through practicing right view and all the rest of the teachings. So let me pause here and see if we have any questions before we go to the next part that I was going to share with you guys. We have a question from Judith. I know people who committed suicide to end inanition and important disability. How does it work when the problem is not discontent feelings, but inanition or long-term physical torture? That's still discontentedness because the mind is craving permanent health. The mind thinks that this physical body should be permanently healthy. So when they experience disorders or they experience sickness in the body, the mind becomes discontent because the mind thinks that there should be permanent health. And now because the mind is discontent, they kill themselves. Where if they had the wisdom of these teachings and the training of these teachings, they would understand that the physical body is impermanent. And therefore, they're going to experience unhealthy conditions. They're going to experience sickness, aging, and death as part of the natural process of being born as a human being. So these people who chose to kill themselves while they may say it's because of the medical condition, what it is is it's the mind is an accepting of that medical condition. It's craving permanence. It wants permanent health. And when it doesn't get that, it becomes discontent, sad, angered, frustrated, irritated, annoyed, guilt, shame, fear, whatever other emotions are in there. So that's the real cause of the problem is the mind's craving permanent health. Okay, thank you, David. We have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so let's go to the next part of what I would like to describe for you. If the real problem is that the brain is defective, then we would expect to observe that all populations of people across the world have the same exact defects and the same problems across all populations of people, right? If the true problem is a brain defect, that the chemicals in the brain are defective, then we would expect to see a large population of people all across the world meeting these similar criteria. So we would expect people in each country of the world to have these same brain defects because it's a human defect, right? That's what we're taught when you go through the mental health field, if you've been a patient there. If you weren't sad before you went to see a doctor, when you go see a doctor, somebody in a white coat, and they tell you that your brain is defective, 
and that your chemicals are off and there's nothing you can do about it other than to be relegated to this medicine for the rest of your life. If you weren't sad before you went into the office, you're surely going to be sad when you come out and you find out that this person of authority has told you that you have a brain defect, right? I remember just being utterly broken when I was told these things, right? I was just utterly broken when I was told this at a very young age by a person in a white jacket who I very much respected. And again, they're not doing anything with malicious intent. It's just that they don't know, okay? So if the problem is brain defect, then when people are sad, then we would expect to see this same problem across all populations. But here in Thailand, these people aren't medicated. When people experience discontentedness, they seek guidance in the Buddhist teachings or from their elders, and they find ways to solve their problems and peacefully coexist with each other. They accept the responsibility for their discontent mind. This is why people in Thailand are very calm and very patient, and they tend to manage their emotions very well because they accept responsibility for them and they know that it's within them to be able to control their mind. Now, of course, there's people in Thailand who get angry and frustrated and irritated because not everybody here is enlightened, but at a certain level, the culture and all the elders, they've been taught that you are responsible for your emotions and your feelings and you need to manage those and you need to you know, get a grip on those and control them. So out of one thing that the vast majority of Thai people will generally understand is right view. They will generally be practicing that they are responsible for their own emotions, right? So we would expect if this was truly a brain defect, we would expect to see all populations across the world being on these same chemical substances and why did all of this just happen in the last 50 years, right? There's been this proliferation of chemicals and mental health problems in the last 50 years. Don't we think that people in the Buddhist time experienced sadness and stress and anxiety? Don't we think people like two, three, four hundred years ago experienced sadness, anger and frustration and guilt and boredom and shame? Yeah, they experienced all those same things. But in modern day, we think that we're so smart and so intelligent and we've got all these chemicals at our disposal and we're now using those to somehow modify this brain chemistry thinking that's going to fix the sadness or the anger but it doesn't right if the modern mental health practices are truly helping what we would expect to see is the number of cases and the number of people with mental illness decline because if we have this massive brain defect in the human population, and now there's this new discipline that's introduced 50, 100 years ago, and now we introduce these chemicals into the brain to fix this chemistry, we would expect the number of cases throughout populations to be constantly declining. But that's not what we see. What we see is we see a proliferation of cases throughout the world and millions and millions and millions of more people getting on the chemical and the, the substances in order to modify brain chemistry. So we don't see this declining of cases. We actually see an increase. 
So if something was actually helping, then we would see a declining of this. If the modern health practices are helping in solving a real problem, where we see these mental health practices the most, then these places would have the most mentally stable and mentally fit populations in the world. So places like America and the UK and Australia and places like this that are using the modern mental health practices the most, we would expect these places to be the most stable, meaning we wouldn't see anger, we wouldn't see frustration, we wouldn't see guilt, we wouldn't see shame, we wouldn't see boredom or loneliness, right? We wouldn't see any of these things because these mental health practices are, are going so well and they're working so well that this population of people in the USA are just so mentally stable because that's essentially where a lot of this is coming from is within the US. Is that what we see? Do we see that the US is very mentally stable? Do we see any mass shootings within that population of people going around and just shooting people? Do we see lots of murders? Do we see substance abuse? Do we see families at odds with each other and fighting each other and people just at utter odds with each other, ready to kind of almost kill each other on a daily basis? Well, if this modern mental health practices are actually helping, we would see that the U.S. would be just completely the most peaceful utopia around because these practices are actually helping and people are being very stable with their mental health. But I would say that that's not what we see. We don't see a population of people that are very stable and mentally fit. And I'm not saying that to disparage people from the US. I'm saying that as a fellow citizen of America, that when I was there, I was very mentally unstable. I was very mentally unfit. And while I was trying to do the best I could and improve the mind, there was lots of other people that are experiencing all the same problems that I was experiencing as well. And I wouldn't say that it was a very stable environment, a very peaceful place to exist. But here in Thailand, I do see lots of peacefulness, lots of calmness, right? Because these people are actually taking responsibility for their intentions, their speech, and their actions, and they have learned how to peacefully coexist with each other. They're not fighting and at odds with each other. They're peacefully coexisting with each other. And sure, they disagree. You guys have probably seen there's been recent protests in Thailand. Sure, there's disagreements here, but they find ways to solve them, and they work at solving those by everybody taking responsibility for their emotions. And there's not this massive proliferation of pharmaceuticals where people think that these discontent feelings are based on brain chemistry. So because Western cultures don't understand the practices and these teachings of the three universal truths, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, what we see in Western culture and modern day cultures is we see that because of this lack of understanding of the three universal truths, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and all the other teachings, we see utter discontentedness. We see sadness and anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. People want to be happy and excited and elated, boredom and loneliness and shyness and displeasure and complaining, right? We see a lot of that. Now, sure, 
there's certain communities in the world in these cultures that are very peaceful right there's definitely people that are more peaceful than others but when you look at the populations as a whole you just see utter discontentedness and the reason why i'm sharing this information is not to disparage these people i'm sharing this information so that people can understand what the real source of the problem is and so that they can fix it right i'm looking to share the solution into the world so that more and more people can experience this peacefulness that exists here in thailand because the more that the western culture understands the three universal truths the four noble truths the eightfold path and everything else that the buddha has to share the more that we accept responsibility for our intentions our speech and our actions the more that we understand that it's not brain chemistry that's causing all of this discontentedness it's how the mind is untrained the more we understand that and we start training our mind the more that you can eliminate this discontentedness and the more this entire world will become peaceful not because this is a religion to practice, not because the Buddha taught a religion, but because he taught a life practice. He taught a discipline that when we learn and practice these teachings to train the mind, we can develop a peaceful world where all of us peacefully coexist together. Jesus Christ called this heaven on earth because if everybody was peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, it would be heaven on earth. But it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a gradual process. And we don't need to go around and convince everybody else to learn and practice these teachings. We just need to convince ourselves to learn and practice these teachings. And in doing so, with you not believing anything that I say, you learning and practicing the teachings and training your mind, then you can see the truth for yourself and you can see how your mind is gradually becoming more peaceful more calm, more serene, and more content with joy. And as you see that truth through the wisdom, you will know that by you accepting responsibility for your intentions, your speech, and your action, along with all the other teachings of the Buddha, by you learning and practicing those, you will see the condition of your mind and the condition of your life gradually improve. And you don't need to be relegated to a lifetime of medications. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. Why do you think it is, David, that we're seeing numbers of cases increasing worldwide? Because of what I opened up with, it's conformity. As human beings, we tend to conform to what's around us. The more marketing that goes into marketing that sadness is an illness, the more marketing that goes into suicidal thoughts is an illness, the more that this is propagated out into the world. Because again, these people have good, wholesome intentions. They don't realize, these medical professionals don't realize that what they believe is not actually true. That's being propagated out into the world thinking that they're truly helping. But in reality, they're actually causing major problems in the world. Now, there are certain situations where, like when I was experiencing what the mental health providers called psychosis, like there was no amount of meditation or learning the Four Noble Truths that would have took me out of psychosis when I was experiencing that. When the mind was unraveling and I started hearing different things and I started 
seeing certain things. There was no amount of meditation at that specific moment that was going to solve that. So I needed those pharmaceutical psychiatric drugs in order to bring the brain chemistry to a certain level, which then helped to influence the mind to be a little bit more calm. But that's an acute situation that's being solved in that situation. If people grew up like the Thai people grow up with these teachings permeating in the culture for over a thousand years now, over a thousand years, these people have been learning and practicing these teachings. It's so embedded into their culture and they grow up learning good mental health practices. If that is what we get to in the Western world where we all grow up learning these things, then we don't ever get to psychosis. We don't ever get to those problems. You look in the news, you don't see mass shootings in Thailand. You don't see people shooting up schools, right? You don't see people murdering in Thailand. You'll hear an occasional murder here and there. But when I looked at this in America, there's 40 or 50 murders a day in America, right? And there's some cities that'll have 20 or 30 murders in a day, in one day on certain holidays, right? And this is because of a lack of training and discipline of the mind. But here in Thailand, I don't know how many murders we have in a given year, but it's very rare to hear about a murder here in Thailand because people just understand that that is not helpful to their life. It's occasionally does happen, but very, very rarely. So this proliferation of mental health practices in the world is all because of conformity. We're conforming to what we think is right, and we tend to believe science. And there's a lot of wonderful things that have come out of science. Science has helped humanity enormously, right? But the problem is, is that we get so egotistical, and we think that we're so smart, and we do things better than anybody else on the world and anybody, anything else in the past. And once we do, we get that way in, in the modern world. Then we think that these modern discipline of mental health practices is so much better than anything we've had in the past. But what we don't see is that all of this proliferation of pharmaceutical medicines in the world is actually causing significant harms and it never actually solves the real problem because we just see this huge proliferation of more and more cases. We don't see this downward declining trajectory because everyone's getting more healthy. Because if these practices were good, we would see that people would be getting more healthy and we would see that less and less people would need these mental drugs, these pharmaceutical drugs. Because when we introduce things like exercise in the world, our lifespans increased, right? When, when, when people started exercising and training the physical body, the lifespan started increasing. Our life expectancy increased. That's how we know that exercise works. But here with the mental discipline of practicing pharmaceuticals being interjected into the body, we don't see that. We don't see a declining of cases. We see a proliferation because of conformity and our ego thinking that we are so much smarter than these things that have been shared in the past. And also these teachings of the Buddha are really not really well understood in the world. Thailand is not the kind of country that is, we know the truth and we're going to convince everyone in the world of what the truth is. And we're going to go out and actively campaign to convince everyone to learn the Buddhist teachings. That's not how Thailand functions. 
Thailand has a lot of wonderful things here and they will share them. They don't hold on to them. They will share them, but only if people ask. You guys might think this is a lie, but you should know by now I don't lie. Thailand knows how to create rain, okay? There's times in Thailand where it hasn't rained for a really long time and it becomes really polluted and there's lots of fires, forest fires and things like this. They have a way to take airplanes up into the sky and they spray a certain substance and it actually produces rain. They actually announce it on the news. They say, okay, everybody, it hasn't rained for a really long time. We're going to start launching our planes and we're going to make it rain. Within three to four days, it starts raining, right? Because they have to put a certain amount of this in the atmosphere for it to rain. Now, does anyone else in the world know that that exists? I don't think so. Why? Because Thailand doesn't just push what they know, their wisdom in an egotistical way into the world. If anybody ever came here and asked the Thai people, how do you do this? I'm sure they would be more than willing to share it with them and they'd probably share it for free. They wouldn't charge any money for it. But this is something that was developed by the past king because he was an engineer. King Rama the Nine, he developed this technology along with the Thai government and they will implement it every so often and they let everyone know that they're doing it. So that if we see the planes flying around, we don't get confused of what's going on. And lo and behold, right after they launch the planes, it starts raining. So that's how I know it's true because I've seen it with my own eyes. So these teachings of the Buddha are here in Thailand, but they're not gonna push them out into the world they're available for people who choose to learn them and practice them. And when people choose to do that, they will see the truth for themselves that the condition of the mind improves. So it seems like at least part of the reason for increasing cases is our own tendency to label it as something, as some permanent condition we can put in a box so that we can control and understand and maybe medicate and maybe even make profit off. It could be. It could be greed. But see, people don't know. They don't know the solution. Right. Like when people get sad or angry or frustrated or feeling guilt or shame or suicidal thoughts, of course, they want to solve that problem because there's symptoms. There's anguish there. They want to solve those problems. And the only solution that Western culture offers for somebody who's feeling deeply saddened or feeling like they're going to kill themselves, the only solution that we offer is these pharmaceutical substances. There's really not anything else being offered. So people don't know of this solution that's available in the world. And that's one of the reasons why I'm sharing these teachings into the Western world is to help you guys understand that there's this solution that will permanently solve these problems of the discontent mind. So more and more people in the world are practicing wrong view. They think the problem is brain chemistry. They don't have any other options of what will solve this problem. They trust the doctors, they trust the scientists, because we've all been taught to do that. And in most cases we should, right? But in this particular situation, the scientists and the doctors don't have it 100% correct. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so let's go to the next thing that I would like to share, which is you can learn to practice these teachings to create a well-trained and stable mind. If you're experiencing discontentedness and you're on medications, that's fine. That's where you're at right now. If you are thinking about getting medications, I would say hold off on that and learn and practice these teachings first. Or if you have 
people close to you that are taking medications or considering. You may want to provide them this book, provide them a link to this talk, help them to see the truth. You're not going to be in a position to teach it to them, but you can certainly connect them with me through all the resources that I provide and I will help those people to eliminate depression and sadness and anger and frustration and guilt and shame and suicidal thoughts, even schizophrenia, okay? Even OCD, ADD, ADHD, bulimia, anorexia, all of these things, multiple personality disorders, all these different symptoms of the mind can be remedied through learning and practicing these teachings to create a well-trained and stable mind. You can gradually eliminate the medications. As the mind becomes more and more stable through learning and practicing these teachings, you will experience it for yourself. You will see the mind in your life gradually becoming more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And as the mind becomes more and more stable, gradually, you can then gradually eliminate the medications. If you choose, it's your choice. As a teacher, I'm never going to tell you to eliminate your medications. I'm never going to force you to do it. I'm never going to try to tell you when is the right time to do it. But if you ask me questions and you're interested and you would like some guidance, I can help you do this because I did this myself. I sometimes reach back here into my little drawer and I keep this around because I like to remind myself every once in a while of all the different medications that I used to take, right? These are just some of them, right? There's lots of different medications here. And I would take tons and tons of these just to be able to function each day. And even just to be able to sleep, right? I was highly dependent on these medications and still my life wasn't what I was interested in living. It was getting more and more difficult. It was getting horrible, more and more horrible. And it wasn't until I got off of all that stuff that I was able to train my mind to fall asleep by itself. You guys probably remember a month or two ago, I accidentally fell asleep before class. And one of the reasons why that happened and I came late to class is because I'm not used to being able to fall asleep on my own. In the last two and a half years, I've been able to do that. But for the 24 years before that, for 24 years, I couldn't sleep without taking a whole bunch of medications. And my mind wouldn't sleep unless I took those medications. So I could sit down on a bed, I could lay on a bed, I could do anything. I wouldn't fall asleep, it didn't matter. So sometimes I doze off and don't even realize it. And I utterly enjoy now being able to naturally fall asleep on my own. And I get the most tranquil, the most peaceful sleep that I've ever experienced in my life more so than I ever experienced on any medication. So if you're on medication, you can gradually reduce this, but you need to build up your practice so that your mind is stabilized and well-trained so that as you're increasing your practice and your training, stabilizing the mind, you can decrease and gradually eliminate your medications. And since I've done that on my own, I know how to do that. So if you would like to seek guidance, I will help you but you're the one who ultimately is going to make all the decisions in your life, not me. Because by eliminating these substances, you essentially eliminate a lifetime of being relegated to medications, therapies, and the expense of these things. Massive expense in having this so-called mental illness, enormous amount of expense that completely got wiped off 
that I no longer have to work and work and work and work and work and work to maintain all these medications. And that's one of the reasons why I no longer have to have a career and I can just live on donations from you guys is because I no longer have to spend all this money on medications, right? You can free yourself from this lifetime of expense and the side effects of this medication. These medications have enormous side effects through training the mind and liberating it to enlightenment where the mind can function with freedom from all of these medications. I can't tell you the guilt and shame. Every day, every time I took pills, it was a reminder. Your brain's defective. You are a defective human being. Every time you take that medication, it's a reminder based on what I was told at a very young age that my brain is defective, right? This is earth shattering to somebody that is told these things. But when you get off of this medication <laughs> and you can liberate the mind and you can train the mind, how liberating is that? How much freedom can you feel from that? It's an amazing feeling, right? And you can experience that. You'll know when the right time is to decrease your medications. There's been students who have eliminated their medications through studying with me already, right? I've been teaching now for a while and there's been students that have been learning and training and stabilizing their mind and they will tell me, they will say, David, I'm going to start decreasing my medication. I say, okay, that sounds good. And there's been students who have completely gotten off this medication. So it's not just me. It's not just a one-time thing. It's happening for other people as well. So what I was told is that I have this permanent mental illness. Well, what else in the world is permanent? Have we been able to find anything yet? Mental illness is not permanent. It can be solved. The mind can be trained. And as the mind gradually improves, you'll see the truth for yourself. As the condition of the mind gradually improves and you stabilize the mind more and more, and then you can decrease this medication and now you get rid of all that expense, all the time that it takes to go in and out of hospitals and doctor's appointments, and you can eliminate all these side effects. Had all kinds of aches and pains in my head and my body and everywhere else. Had trouble eating and uh, sleeping and had a dry mouth and all kinds of problems from these medications. So the problem is craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. The mind wants things to be permanent. And when it doesn't get it, it experiences sadness, anger, frustration. The mind is untrained. It has these unwholesome thoughts, these suicidal thoughts, these disparaging thoughts, this negative self-talk in the mind that tells you that you're no good. And as long as you believe all of that stuff and you're not training your mind, all of that stuff is going to keep knocking your feet out from under you. You're going to keep thinking that your brain is defective and you're going to keep relegating yourself to these medicines and you're essentially going to be relegating yourself to a lifetime of discontentedness. But if you understand that discontentedness is caused by your own mind, your own craving, desire, attachment, then you can do something about it. As soon as you accept responsibility for your intentions, your speech and your actions, in this discontent mind and all the feelings that are in it, as soon as you accept responsibility for that, now you can do something about it and you can fix it, okay? 
So let me see if there's any questions here before we go into each individual type of mental illness and talk about them individually. We have a question from Brian. How to deal with anxiety that is very present and felt in the body as I'm getting on the path? I have been diagnosed with general anxiety disorder and am on antidepressants, but these don't really work for me ultimately. I would like to work my way to where I no longer need them. Brian, the solution is that you need to learn and practice all these teachings to train the mind with guidance from a teacher. You and I have never talked because I don't recognize your name. I haven't been working with any Brian's recently. So I would like to encourage you to reach out to me either by private message or some other way. I've got my contact information everywhere and I will ensure that you get one of these books uh, downloaded or printed or what have you and you can start getting some guidance. Everything I offer is completely offered openly and freely to all people. There's no money that you need to pay me in order to get this help and this guidance. And through developing your life practice of training the mind, you'll gradually improve the condition of the mind. This anxiety that you're feeling and experiencing, it's typically fear of the future. The mind is in the future and it's fearing and anticipating something in the future and it's fearing that. But I can't just say, here, take this pill and it's going to solve the anxiety. That's not how these teachings work. There's not just one thing that you need to do in order to solve the anxiety. It's an entire life practice of learning the teachings and gradually progressing to gradually train the mind. And you need teachers and guidance to be able to do that. So all the resources I provide are offered openly and freely. You just have to choose to reach out and get help, and I'm here to help you. Okay, thanks, David. That's all our questions at the moment. Okay, so let's talk about each individual mental illness or things that have been classified as mental illness. Because let's make sure you understand what's happened here, is when the mental health industry first got started, they came up with a book you know, that was so thick and they said these are mental illnesses and they named the mental illness and then they put a bunch of symptoms associated with that label okay and then as that kind of got started and medications were developed and people kind of came into these practices then they added some more and the book got a little bit thicker and they came up with some new labels they added a whole bunch more symptoms and classified this is now a new mental illness. And this book of diagnosable mental illnesses keeps growing and growing and growing where they're discovering new mental illnesses all the time. But essentially what this label of ADHD or ADD is, is it's a label and then there's a whole bunch of symptoms that are describing this label. And the people who are labeled as ADHD or ADD these 10 or 20 symptoms, not everybody has all these symptoms. Some people do have some of them, some people don't. There's no scientific test. They can't test your blood. There's no device to test that you have ADHD or ADD. It's just somebody looking at what's going on in your behavior and in your mind and saying, okay, well, we're gonna say you have ADHD, ADD, and now we're gonna give you this medication. So ADHD or ADD is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, right? Where essentially the mind is not focused. It's not concentrated. The mind jumps around from topic to topic to topic and it has trouble focusing on one thing at a time. 
So essentially, they have lack of right concentration. The mind has this craving for mental stimulation, and the mind is not focused and concentrated. So by training the mind through meditation and the entire path to enlightenment to develop singleness of mind, which is right concentration, the person who's now labeled as ADHD or ADD can increase their concentration, increase their focus, increase their clarity of mind, and they will see for themselves that they're actually not mentally ill at all, that it was just that their mind was untrained. Because when they start training their mind, they will see that it will improve. The condition of the mind will improve. Their concentration will improve. And they will see the truth for themselves because they know what it feels like to live with an unconcentrated mind that has trouble focusing. And when they train their mind actively through these teachings and it becomes more and more concentrated, they'll see it for themselves and they'll know that their mind's becoming more stable. So this label of ADHD or ADDD is just a bunch of symptoms that can be easily mapped into the Buddhist teachings and shown that it's just a mind that is craving mental stimulation and they're lacking singleness of mind or focused or concentration, right concentration. Same thing with anorexia or bulimia or eating disorders. What this is, is this is people who are craving a certain image of beauty, right? They look at certain magazines and imagery on TV and movies, and they have this false reality of what beauty is. And when they start identifying the self and their personal identity through these images, now these people crave. They have this mental longing with a strong eagerness to look like the pictures in the magazine. But what the mind doesn't understand is these magazines have all been photoshopped. That image of beauty is not a real image of beauty. It's what's being projected in the magazines. But as a young child, the mind is very impressionable. And most people develop anorexia and bulimia, eating disorders, very young in life. And because their mind has this mental longing with a strong eagerness for this permanent beauty, now the person starts starving themselves or making themselves vomit. And now we say that's a mental illness and we need to put them on medication to fix it, right? But what it is, is their mind is just craving this false image of beauty. And when they understand that and they start getting under training, then they will eliminate this desire to starve themselves or make themselves vomit. They'll recognize the impermanence of the body and they will eliminate this craving for this false image of beauty in this identification of a self. And they can eradicate their problems of anorexia, bulimia, and eating disorders, right? Anxiety, the one that Brian just talked about, this is usually anticipation or fear of a future event, situation, or outcome. Anxiety is usually because the mind is fearing something that's going to happen or anticipating something in the future. The mind of an enlightened being is going to be in the present moment. Focus, concentrated, clarity, deep memorization, no discontent feelings whatsoever. The mind's not going to be worried about the future because the unenlightened mind is going to be holding on to the past and it's going to be worrying about the future and it's going to produce anxiety. But we don't know what the future is. We don't even know what the next five minutes or next 10 minutes is going to be, let alone a day from now, a week from now, or a year from now. But the mind 
longs for it. The mind longs, has this strong eagerness for the future, and it gets fearful, right? And it has this anticipation because the mind is lacking control and mental discipline. The more the mind is trained to come into the present moment, the more the mind won't have this anticipation and fear of future events because it'll just be residing in the present moment. And it's only once you get under training with this whole life practice to include meditation that the mind is going to gradually eliminate this anxiety over time. So that's what needs to happen, Brian, is this gradual training to gradually eliminate this anxiety. It's going to be a slow, gradual process, but it'll be a permanent solution. It will be an absolute permanent solution. All of this, once you train the mind and the mind becomes enlightened, it's a permanent solution. Bipolar disorder, we already talked about that, this kind of up and down, painful feelings, pleasant feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, this craving for sexual contact, for possessions, for excitement. And the more the mind's trained, the mind can come into the present moment in the middle and it can be stable rather than bouncing around with these painful and pleasant feelings. So remember, the feelings that people are experiencing are real. The anguish, the misery, like Brian could tell you, and some of you could too, like when you're feeling anxiety and you feel the heart palpitations and you feel the pain in the body, that's all real. It's 100% real, that anticipation and that fear. But the cause of what's causing that, that people are being told is what's, not real. That's the part that is a delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality. Depression, same thing. Massive painful feelings, deep painful feelings, typically from past traumas or having expectations of the future that they haven't met and they feel like their life is worthless, right? You get into deep despair, major depression or even mild depression. feels horrible, right? When the mind is discontent, there's even physical symptoms in the body that feels uncomfortable in the physical body because the mind is so discontent. Even though the physical body and the intangible mind are separate, there is a connection there. And when the mind is discontent and feeling this deep despair and sadness, there's physical symptoms in the body. But these people are often put on medication and it's actually not solving the real problem. Hoarding. Right. There's this hoarding where people get attached to material possessions and they go out and shop and they hoard a lot of things like a lot of baby dolls or they shop a lot or they collect things and they just hoard and hoard and hoard and hoard and overpopulate their dwelling with all this material possessions. And we say that this person is mentally ill, but in reality, it's just craving, desire, attachment. It's the mental longing with a strong eagerness, thinking that. I bought one thing yesterday, and if I buy two things today, that's what will get me the pleasant feelings. So now I go buy two things. And now that pleasant feelings wear off, and I want that pleasant feelings back, but I can't just buy two things. I need to buy three things or four things or five things. And I have to keep upping the number of things that I buy because I'm chasing that high. I'm chasing those pleasant feelings, and the more that I hoard, the more that I feel pleasant feelings. But as soon as those pleasant feelings become impermanent and they wear off, I've got to go buy something else to get those pleasant feelings back. And I keep chasing this high through purchasing all these different things and hoarding things. But it never solves the problem. 
until the mind stops craving and it stops longing with a strong eagerness for more and more pleasant feelings. And it realizes that this behavior of buying things and collecting material possessions isn't going to solve the problem. The problem is the craving desire attachment that the mind is longing for something externally to create internal pleasant feelings. That's the problem, not the brain chemistry. The brain chemistry isn't the problem. It's the mind, this intangible mind is untrained. Insomnia, inability to fall asleep. As the mind awakens gradually over time, as the mind becomes more and more enlightened, you might experience an erratic sleep schedule, right? Or even just in daily life, you might experience an erratic sleep schedule. What's the definition of insomnia? The definition of insomnia is essentially somebody who doesn't fall asleep easily at the same time each day or within a relatively reasonable amount of time each evening. Well, what do we know about impermanence? So if everything's impermanent, is our sleep schedule permanent? Should we expect to fall asleep at 10 o'clock every single night? Or should we even expect to sleep every single night? There's going to be some nights where you don't sleep. Or you're going to sleep at 2 a.m. instead of 10 p.m. Because you've got a lot on your mind. But the more you train the mind, the more you can control the mind, the mind will naturally fall asleep easily. It's like when you were a child. When you were a child, your mind was in the present moment. You weren't thinking about the bills. You weren't thinking about what job you're going to have. You weren't thinking about selling your flat. You weren't thinking about boyfriends and girlfriends. You weren't thinking about looking so great at work and having ego and arrogance and pride. You weren't concerned about what people were saying to you. When you were four, five, six, seven years old, you could fall asleep at the drop of a hat. I mean, it would almost take an earthquake to wake you up, right? And that's because your mind was in the present moment and had very little craving, desire, attachment. So you were able to fall asleep. Your mind was in the present moment. But as we age and we get more and more conditioning in the mind, the mind starts worrying. It starts having stress. It starts having expectations. It starts wanting things. It starts thinking about all these problems in the world. Now you have trouble falling asleep. Well, of course, because the mind's conditioned. The mind doesn't understand all these problems and all this impermanence and life becomes difficult. And now the only solution is take some medicine and that's what's going to make you sleep. But then you have to keep relying on the medicine and you have to keep taking more and more of it because it doesn't work as well. And then there's all these side effects with the medicine and there's all this expense with it as well, where what you need to do is you really need to train the mind to go back to this child's mind. That's essentially what enlightenment becomes, is bringing the mind back to almost this child's mind where it's unconditioned. Because as a baby being born into the world, the mind is unconditioned, essentially. There's still some conditions there, but very few. This is why children can actually get enlightened very, very easily, very, very quickly in a matter of months or, or sometimes a year or two. They can attain enlightenment as early as age seven because they don't have much craving, anger and ignorance. Right. This can actually be eradicated in the, the mind because it's not very well conditioned. 
But the more that we're conditioned as adults and we pick up all these past traumas in our life and all these past experiences, now it becomes difficult to sleep and we turn to medications. But it never solves the problem. The problem is that the mind is not peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's lacking the ability to rest. The mind hasn't learned how to rest and fall asleep. So once you train the mind, you will be able to rest and fall asleep. As long as these conditions and this burden and this stress is on the mind, yeah, it's going to have problems falling asleep because it's holding on to all these conditions. When you let go of all of that stuff through training of the mind, it will naturally fall asleep like you did when you were a kid. <laughs> and it feels so wonderful, right? So let's go to some more. This is the last thing that I have to share. OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, where the mind is craving things to be a certain way, right? They want everything on their desk a certain way. They want everything in their house a certain way. They might even have germophobia, fears of, of germs, right? Or obsessive thoughts, right? This is craving desire attachment. Personality disorders. This is people decide that everyone's personality should be like this. There are certain expectations and perceptions around what a personality should be. And when someone doesn't meet that criteria, now we say they have a personality disorder. This is the doctor's craving permanence, right? Everybody's personality should be a certain way. Like all of us should be exactly the same in the world. That's how this world works, is that everyone's personality should be exactly the same, right? So if somebody talks aggressive or hostile or angry, now we say they have a personality disorder and we treat that with medication because they're being angry and hostile and they don't speak politely and kindly. This is a personality disorder. Or if people have multiple personalities where they think that they're a child or an adult or a male or a female, and they have two, three, four, five, ten different personalities in their mind, this is their past lives, residual memories from their past lives coming back, and they think that they are actually these other people when they're really not. And if they understand that they don't have just one life, they've actually had multiple lives, and that these other beings that they're remembering and speaking as if I am a 12-year-old girl, then if the person understands that and they train their mind to eliminate the self and get to this enlightened mental state, then it can come into more stability and they can eliminate this proliferation of memories from their past lives. But as long as they don't understand that, and the mind is untrained, then they're going to constantly have these memories of past lives, and they're going to think that they are these people from their past lives, right? Phobias, these are fears, protection of a self. There's a number of different phobias that people are taking medications about, but you can eliminate a fear, like germophobia, someone who's scared of germs, right? They think that the germs are going to harm them. They're scared to die, right? They don't recognize impermanence. Their mind is having this longing and strong eagerness for cleanliness. They're not mentally ill. They're having some problems. Their mind is untrained, but they're just scared. They're fearful of dying from these germs, and they want things to be in a perfect way, right? When they train the mind, this will get resolved. 
PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. This is usually from events that have happened in the past, some type of trauma. The mind is holding on to that trauma and those experiences, and now there's painful feelings as a result of that. But when the mind is trained to let go of these past experiences, then the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing these painful feelings. Schizophrenia, people that are labeled as schizophrenic, they're oftentimes hear voices or they see things that other people don't see. These voices are typically from the other realms, from the heavenly realm, afflicted spirit realm, or the hell realm. I experienced this myself multiple times where you hear voices that other people don't hear, right? And people will say you're hallucinating, you're delusional, you're crazy, you're mentally ill. But that's just because people don't understand these realms. They don't understand how the mind awakens. And as the mind awakens, these beings from the other realms can tap into you or you can tap into them. And now you're hearing things that other people don't hear. But that's because in a Western culture, if they don't understand the realms and they don't understand awakening of the mind, they're not going to understand that this person is not mentally ill. It's just that their mind is starting to awaken. It's untrained. So there's not discipline there to control the mind. So when they're hearing these voices, they get scared. And they're oftentimes motivated by these demonic voices to do things. So schizophrenic people can actually cause a lot of harm in the world through harming themselves or physically harming other people. And this is because they're listening to the demonic voices, right? And there can be heavenly voices or divine beings that are also telling you lots of good things too. And if the person doesn't have the mental control and stability, they might be motivated by these things. And they might become very grandiose because of the heavenly beings, or they might become very evil and vindictive and, and actually execute some of the things that these other beings are communicating. Oftentimes people turn to substance abuse when the mind is functioning and having all these painful feelings, pleasant feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. People will try to escape these feelings through self-medicating with cocaine, methamphetamines, marijuana, all these different things. The mind's stressed or sad or frustrated or angered and the mind is looking for this high and people oftentimes dive into substance abuse and essentially the mind is craving these pleasant feelings it's looking for that high those pleasant feelings but it's temporary and each time they need more and more and more of that drug and they get deeper and deeper into their addiction and because they're chasing these pleasant feelings they become addicted to substances and then things can get so horribly bad with all of these feelings that someone can actually become suicidal and actually be interested in killing themselves. And it's because the feelings in the mind are so painful from all these past traumas and all these experiences that the mind expects things to be a certain way and the person can actually kill themselves or attempt to kill themselves. And it's unfortunate that this happens because somebody could actually be learning and practicing these teachings to get really stable mind before it gets to the point of suicidal thoughts. Or if somebody's currently having suicidal thoughts, they can learn and practice these teachings in order to gain stability and control of the mind where they can improve the quality of the mind and improve the quality of their life where they are no longer interested in dying. Because remember, most suicidal people will tell you 
they don't want to die. They just want to stop all the painful feelings. But they don't know how to stop the painful feelings. Doesn't matter what medication they're put on, the painful feelings are still there. In fact, a large number of people on these psychotropic medications do commit suicide every day. Suicidal rates right now are off the charts, right? So they don't want to die. They just want to end the painful feelings. Well, if they're interested in eliminating the painful feelings, training the mind through the Buddhist teachings is the way to do that. And when you do, the mind will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and it'll gradually move in that direction more and more. But people have to choose to move in this direction. You can't force somebody to learn and practice these teachings. And with that, I'll just open up to any questions you guys have about anything I've been discussing throughout today's class. What might the connections to the teachings be, David, of autism and similar conditions like Asperger's? I don't know a whole lot about autism and Asperger's. I know a little bit. You know, some people feel that perhaps there's some chemicals from some of these vaccines that we're using that are causing these because these conditions didn't exist in other times of human history. And people show some pretty convincing evidence about vaccines, but that doesn't mean all vaccines are, are bad, but it could be, right? Because we know impermanence, so we know that nothing's permanent. So any substance that we inject into the body, everybody's not going to have a favorable response to that. That would be permanence. So we know that there's going to be some people who have a negative response to anything being injected into the body because that's impermanence. But whether that's the truth or not, I don't know because I'm not a doctor. And this is where scientists and doctors really need to understand the Buddhist teachings, practice the Buddhist teachings, and see that they can train their mind and improve the condition of their mind so that now they can research this stuff and look at Asperger's and autism better because it does seem like there might be some brain trauma there either from birth or perhaps through substances, perhaps pollution in water, perhaps air pollution, who knows what it might be. We haven't figured that out yet, but that's something that needs to be researched. People that I've known who've been labeled as autistic often have these astonishing abilities the vast majority of other people don't have mm -hmm. like uh, i have one old friend who has this ability to remember in great detail what happened on every single day of his life going back pretty much until he learned what a clock even was and he'll list out the events that happened that day what he had for dinner what the weather was if you said to him you know, what day was the 3rd of March, 1994, he'd tell you which day of the week it was, just like that. Mm -hmm. And he has been uh, labeled as autistic and he, he does have difficulties with a lot of things that people who, who have this label also have. And so, you know, it, there are certain other things there which you could say are like, make things harder for him. But he also has this astonishing ability and makes me think that it's not necessarily a case of brain trauma, but just the way his mind is conditioned, you know, what it's been trained to do effectively. From everything that I know, Max, uh, about autism and from everything I know about the Buddhist teachings and from everything else I know about other mental illnesses, I would think that autism is also what you're saying is conditioning of the mind. But I, I don't know that 100% because I was never diagnosed with autism. I've never really sat and discussed this with people who really understand autism. I've been around a few autistic people 
And from what I see is, yeah, there's certain habits and certain thinking that is different than other people. But just because it's different doesn't mean it's a mental illness. It's just impermanence. You know, if the mind of doctors thinks that there's this permanent personality that all people should function this exact same way, and anyone who doesn't meet that criteria is mentally ill and autistic, then yeah, they're going to label those people as mentally ill. But if they understand impermanence and they understand that not everyone's going to conform to this ideal human being, this perfect human being, then if you see somebody that does things differently than you, then that's just normal. And it would be interesting to work with some children and some adults who are considered to be autistic and work with them with the Buddhist teachings and see the condition of the mind improve. Because the fact that an autistic person can remember the day of the week and have this recall that you're talking about shows that chemically there's nothing wrong with the brain, right? Like if you have that deep, profound memory and usually autistic children and people are very creative, right? They're very inspirational, other things like this. If they can talk and they can walk and they can function, that's essentially what the brain does. It controls the nervous system and it controls movement and organs and things like this then it's just a matter of you know i know some autistic children are very shy they don't talk they're they're very reserved their personality is kind of uh, more introverted things like this or they might have certain audible things that they say or do these things can be trained i'm almost positive but i just haven't had firsthand experience to do it so that's why I can't really speak on it real effectively, but I think there's a lot of evidence that shows that these people can train their mind and realize better life through training their mind and improving the condition of their mind, just like everybody else. Yeah, that certainly would be very interesting. Okay, so we have a question from Javier. Is it possible to notice benefits in a few weeks of training? Or does one need to train for a very long time to improve on one's mental issues? I've had students train with me for two or three days and already see benefits and improvements. Everybody's situation is different. Most of these people are people who are training in person that are here in Chiang Mai and come to retreats or classes with me. But I've even had people over the internet who have read this book and have never talked to me at all and contact me two, three, four, six months later and talk about massive improvements that they've made. I've also had in the middle where people have picked this up and got under training with me for a couple of weeks. And within a couple of weeks, they're already noticing improvements. So I'm working with people who have been labeled as depressed or having anxiety disorder, even schizophrenia. I'm working with all kinds of different people, substance abuses, sexual cravings, things like this. And all of these people are making progress. The people who work with me one-on-one -on -one make the most progress. So people who are here in person with me or people who meet with me regularly through Zoom sessions, like once a week, once every two weeks, once a month, all of these people that I'm talking to, they're all making improvements and they can see it for themselves. So it's not me deciding that they've made improvement. They're telling me when they talk to me, you know, after a week or two weeks or three weeks, David, your teaching and what I'm doing is actually really working. I'm noticing these differences. Here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing my anger slowly diminish. I'm seeing my frustration do this. I'm seeing 
the joy coming through. I'm seeing my spouse who gets very discontent and he's not practicing the teachings and he's very lonely, bored and discontent during COVID, but I'm completely calm in, in the past. I would have been very discontent with having to quarantine for all these weeks and lock down for all these weeks. So people are telling me things that they're experiencing and they're noticing the improvements. So I've seen it as, as a few as just a couple of days, but I've also seen other scenarios as well. So I would say that it's going to take multiple years in order to get to enlightenment. That's why I call it a life practice. But in terms of seeing even just beginning marginal improvements, it can be in just a couple of days. Good stuff. Okay, David, that's all of our questions for now. Okay. Well, I really appreciate that you guys are all still consistently learning and practicing these teachings. The only way you're going to see any improvement is if you actually learn and practice the teachings. If all you do is show up and listen to talks and that's what you're doing right now, okay, that's fine. But what you've got to get to is you've got to get to where you're training the mind, where you're meditating daily, once, twice, three times a day. The closer to two or three times a day that you're meditating and 30 minutes or more, the better. But you got to start somewhere just once a day for five or 10 minutes. That's a good start. And then you just build it up more and more. Meditation is the foundation of this practice and this path to enlightenment. But it's not the only thing that you need to do. You need to read. You need to listen to the talks. You need to watch the videos. You need to listen to the podcast. You need to take in this intellectual understanding of the teachings. And then you need to apply it in practice so you can see the truth for yourself and gain the wisdom. As you're training the mind more and more, you will see the conditions of the mind improve. If you're not seeing improvement, at all. You need to be contacting me. And even if you're just starting, you need to be contacting me. Even if you've been studying with me for three, four, five, six months and you're seeing some improvement, but that improvement has slowed down, you need to get in touch with me. This practice, this path is all about learning the teachings through seeking guidance with a teacher. The challenge in our Western culture is the ego is up really big. We think we can do everything ourselves. We're taught to be independent. We're taught to do everything ourselves. We've got this self-service economy at our fingertips. We can order things online and have it delivered. We can watch YouTube videos and train ourselves to bake or build a dog house or do any number of things through YouTube videos. We've got all this information at our fingertips. And one of the biggest challenges I see with people attempting this path is they're doing it alone. They're trying to put together all these teachings from all these various sources without any guidance whatsoever. They're on this independent journey with no teacher. This is an independent journey. At the end of the day, this is totally an independent journey. You need to be dedicated and committed to learning and practicing the teachings as an independent journey. But you need to seek guidance from a teacher who can provide you resources, who can understand your mind, who can understand things that are going on and provide you the prescriptions and the antidotes to solving the mind and training the mind, not through pharmaceuticals, but through learning certain teachings and through meditations by learning certain teachings and through certain meditations, you can train the mind and improve the condition of the mind. 
But if you're out there trying to do this on your own without guidance, you're not going to be able to do it. Only a Buddha can do that. That's why he lived 2,500 years ago. He went through all the heartache and misery and pain to do this on his own for six years to journey through his discontent mind, discover these teachings. And then he spent 45 years sharing these teachings so that you wouldn't have to go through that six years of misery that he went through to try to struggle and figure this out. That's what a Buddha does. A Buddha grapples with this problem of a discontent mind. They buckle up the boots, they put on the overalls, they dig into it and they try to solve this problem on their own. And then once they solve it, they know that they solved it because their mind's completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And then they work for the rest of their life to share these teachings into the world so that other people can learn and practice these teachings to improve the condition of their mind through the independent teachings that the Buddha discovered. And then they leave the teachings in such a condition that after they die, those teachings can be continued to be shared and more and more people can attain enlightenment after their death. You are not a Buddha. You can become an enlightened being, but you are not a Buddha. You can't do this alone. So reach out, schedule appointments with me. I have a way for you to do that. Ask questions online in the Facebook group private message me, dive into these resources, spend some time. If you spend a couple of hours a week, two, three, four, five hours a week, meditating, learning the teachings, getting personal guidance, this is your new full-time job to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha in addition to everything else you're doing. And you can ebb and flow the amount of time and effort that you're putting into this as different things happen in your life and you need to focus on work or family life or other things, but you need to have this life practice where you're gradually learning the teachings, gradually implementing the teachings, gradually training the mind and gradually seeing the condition of the mind improve. And as you do, you're going to be so pleased that you did. It's going to be the best thing that you've ever done for your entire life because you're no longer going to have to put up with that anger, frustration, guilt, shame, boredom, loneliness, that negative self-talk in the mind. The condition of the mind is going to gradually improve and the condition of your life is going to gradually improve and you're just going to gradually create a better and better mind for yourself and a better life for yourself. But you've got to do it. Nobody can force you to do it. I make myself available. I make all these resources available. There's no wall whatsoever between you and me. Even we live in two different countries and we live far away. I've set up in such a way with Facebook and YouTube and being able to schedule personal appointments with me, making the books and audiobook, the podcast, the videos, the quizzes, everything's completely free, right? There's no barrier whatsoever. The only thing that's stopping you is your own dedication and commitment, your own complacency. You've got to eliminate that and dedicate yourself because every time you choose to come to one of these talks, every time you choose to dive into the resources to learn, every time you choose to meditate or do some kind of activity that's improving the condition of the mind, you're making a conscious choice to get out of this darkness and move towards the light. And this light 
is this enlightened mind that's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And as you get closer and closer to that, you will know that you're doing it for sure because the condition of the mind's improving. So thank you for your dedication and commitment because you are going to improve your mind and you're going to influence lots and lots of people just through your own intention, speech, and actions. There's no obligation for you to convince people to actually learn and practice these teachings. But when people see the transformation in your mind, more and more people are going to be interested in doing that. Not that you expect it, not that you require it, not that you crave it, but it's just going to happen. You'll see. But the important thing is your mind, not everyone else. This practice is all about your mind. That's how you improve the world, is by improving the condition of your mind. So thank you for joining today's talk. On Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation to eliminate that craving desire attachment. That's what we're going to be doing on Wednesday. And then on Saturday, the 9th, it's the first day of the Pali Canon and English study group where we're going to be learning the words of the Buddha. We're going to be learning his teachings in these books, Buddha Wajana. So if you join us on Saturday, we're going to do a short meditation and then we're going to go right into studying the Buddhist teachings in his own words. And if you would like to get a set of those books, just go to buddhadailywisdom.com, click on online learning, and you'll see the link down at the bottom where you can order a set of these books. And I've recently discovered how to send these books in a really fast way. My wife helped me so I can start getting these books delivered in about five to six days. So I've got a couple of sets that have been ordered recently, and I can send these at, a, at the same cost that I've been shipping and able to send them to you with FedEx and UPS and these kind of things, and they can arrive within maybe three days, five days, or six days to your house. So feel free to order these because the way I was sending them before, it was taking sometimes three, six, eight weeks to be delivered. But now I've been able to find a reasonable way to pay for a really fast shipping here in Thailand. And then on Sunday next week, we're going to be in chapter 23. We're going to be studying the symbolism of the teachings, reminders through imagery. And this is chapter 23, where during the Buddha's lifetime, everything was taught orally. There was no books and YouTube videos and podcasts and all this stuff. So he would teach orally, and then they would use symbols or artwork in order to remind people of the teachings. So if you had sat in the Buddha's discourse about the Eightfold Path and you understood the Eightfold Path, they had a symbol that would represent the Eightfold Path and it re would remind you of the Eightfold Path. Or if you understood what enlightenment is, there was a symbol to remind you of the teachings of the Buddhas. So that's how they kind of reminded people through imagery. And if you know this, if you know the teachings that I've been teaching and that the Buddha taught, and you know the imagery, when you walk into temples or when you see artwork or things like this, it will remind you of the teachings. So I'm going to teach you the imagery and symbols associated with the Buddhist teachings so that when you go into a temple or when you see artwork online, it's like the teachings come alive and helps you to remember the Buddhist teachings. So we're going to do that next Sunday. So thank you for joining. We'll see you either Wednesday, Saturday, or Sunday. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.